Happy 2020. I don't know if you realize it yet, but you're in the first Sunday of a brand new year or decade, depending on your math. A little controversial there, but depending on your math, new decade as well. Hey, if I've not got to meet you yet, my name is John. I get to serve right here as the pastor at Center, and I love what I get to do. I love that we're starting a new year together. One of my family traditions, especially as I got married, uh, was starting to watch the ball drop. How many of you did that this Christmas, or wow, this Christmas, yikes. This new year, uh, you sat there and you watched either on your couch or on your phone or at a party, this light up thing cascade down this mechanical contraption and thousands of us lives were changed, right? <laughs> Everything snapped into a, a different moment. No, it's actually kind of anticlimactic, but the, the ball drop itself and all the music performers, Ryan Seacrest, I mean, come on, like the best looking guy in America, who could, who could hate Ryan? Uh, but we watched that and then watched the ball drop. Now, it, it was a little bit ruined for me this year because last year, I stumbled across some articles, maybe some of you shared them, of the great lengths people go to get their spot in Times Square. Maybe you've read some of this stuff before. Uh, even to the farthest extent of standing in line when it's freezing cold for multiple hours, some the whole day, some before the day, camp out. But some people, now I'm not going to say that you would be crazy enough to do this, but some people in our world at Times Square actually wear diapers and other contraptions because they don't want to lose their spot in line. Did you know this? Like, this is weird human behavior. This is not normal. Um, church may be good, but I hope that you know that the bathrooms are right out the hallway to the right. They're always going to be there. We're not going to move them. They're there. Uh, it's just so funny, though, because you look at what's happening in Times Square, you would never think that people are incredibly uncomfortable. But that's exactly what's happening. Like, I'm staring at them and they're cheering and they've got the Planet Fitness hat on and Ryan Seacrest is walking by. Everyone's giving him high fives and trying to touch his suit and all these weird things. Everyone looks pumped and it makes you kind of want to be there. Like, we were in New York State. We were not in New York City uh, for New Year's Eve. And I kind of wanted to like, let's just get in the car and let's just go. Like, it's only a couple hours. Let's just experience that together because the filter that TV places on that looks incredible until you realize people are standing there in diapers and other weird things that they're doing just to stay in their place in line. And I look at that and I'm like, I would never do something like that. But actually, I do that in my own life all the time. That there's areas of my life I, I like to place nice, polished, professional-looking filters over. Now, the most obvious place for us would be like uh, social media. Like we do that all the time or we like certain filters that make us look better. But we do this even when times are hard in our lives. We ask questions like, why would God allow this to happen? Or why me? Or if God is good, why am I still sick? If God is a kind and generous and, and a forgiving God, why is my family still messed up? We place filters on situations. We place filters even on our own pain. And we place filters on our lives. Some of us look back at 2019 and there's a giant filter over it. For some of us, it's everything's good. I have no issues. My marriage is perfect. My kids are great. Nothing is going wrong. It's a filter of denial because your life probably isn't as great as you think it is or has some issues or maybe the bank account isn't as big as you think it is. But there's other, others of us, we look back at 2019 and there's a filter of shame. There's a filter of guilt. There's a filter of fear. And we look back and we don't want that same year to be repeated in 2020. But here's what is true about filters that we place in our lives. They always keep us from facing the truth. What's really going on? 
That's one of the most difficult places to be in any relationship is the moment where you define reality. Here's where we are actually at. It's a difficult conversation. Some of you maybe have been through the journey of counseling and I've been through that journey. And there's moments where you're meeting with a counselor or a therapist or someone else and you have to hit the reality. You're like, oh, I'm not as put together as I once thought I was, or oh, my marriage really is about on the precipice of dying. Like, as you look at all those things, filters, ultimately they keep us from facing the truth. But do we do this with Jesus? Do we place filters on him? Do we think, well, Jesus must vote like I vote? Jesus must spend money like I spend money? Jesus would like these people or be in relationship with these people just like I am? Or, or what filters do we place on Jesus? Here's what I think is true as we begin this journey through the Gospel of Mark. For most of us, Jesus is not who we think he is. And for all of us, Jesus is much, much more than we think he is. Because for most of us, we have grown up with a picture, especially if you grew up in West Michigan, you grew up with a picture, a filter of who Jesus is. And all of us have one. Whether or not you're a person of faith or you're sitting in this room and you're discovering, do I really wanna follow Jesus? Is he worthy? Do I, get, do I surrender my life to him? And you're asking those questions. Number one, you're in the right place. We're glad you're here. But number two, all of us bring in some of that baggage when it comes to the, the conversation about who Jesus is. And here's what's true. For me, for so long, I placed a filter on Jesus. There was parts of him I liked. And there were parts of him I read in the gospels I didn't like. I didn't want him to confront me. I didn't want him to tell me how to live out my life. I didn't want him to define sexuality. I didn't want him to define how I handled conflict. I didn't want him to tell me what to do with my money. I didn't want him to be the sole reason I had purpose and identity. See, my identity for so long was rooted in the idea that I am valuable as much as I contribute. That if I'm successful, if I produce, if I add value to the thing I'm a part of, whether it's a meeting or a business or, or a family gathering, as long as I'm producing and contributing, I have value. And that was a filter I placed on Jesus, assuming that he needed something from me and I needed something from him. It was really a skewed way of living out a faith, of living out my relationship with Jesus. But can I just tell you real up front, discovering an unfiltered relationship with Jesus has changed literally everything. Everything about my relationship with Jesus, everything about even my marriage, it's shifted so many different things. It's shifted mainly my perspective. And when we talk about Jesus unfiltered, this is the journey we're about to go on. This is the gospel of Mark. This is the life of Christ that we're going to together. And I say together with no end date because I don't know when the series will end. It'll be fun to see where it goes. But together as a teaching team, all three churches, Frontline, New Life, and Center, we sat around a table and just prayed, God, show us what we need to do going into January 2020. And this was the clearest answer we got. Journey with me. Walk with me. Learn my teaching. Study what I did. Because so many of us had a, have a skewed picture of Jesus. And if we were honest, we don't really know all that he said and did. We may be living off a parent's faith. We may be living off a cultural Christianity. We may be living off a lot of different things, but we're gonna embark on a journey of looking at Jesus unfiltered. So ready? Here we go. Mark 1, 1. Seriously, open up if you got a Bible or uh, you got a device, you can Google it or, or version or some kind of app. 
Open up to Mark 1.1, and this is what we read at the very beginning of this story. Here's what Mark writes. He was trying his best to give an account of what Jesus said and did, and here's what he writes. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark 1.1, this is all he writes. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Your translation may have a couple different ways it words that, but essentially Jesus is not just the proclaimer of the good news, which he was. Mark is saying Jesus is also the content of the good news. He's not just a proclaimer. He's not just the voice. He is those things, but he is also the content. If you want to find good news, like we talked about at Christmas, look no further. Jesus is right there. He's in the story. He wants you to experience it for yourself. I'm, again, I'm kind of a history nerd. I've said that before. I said that at Christmas. said it again. I'll probably say it again. You never know. It may happen again. But one of the things I think is interesting about the phrase that Mark uses here is this Greek word arche. And arche really is where we get our, our idea of the beginning or a period, a marker in time. Archaeological, uh, the whole idea that there are things stamped back into time is the whole idea of arche. And RK is this first two-word uh, two phrase right here in Mark 1.1, the beginning. Now, what's fascinating to me, and maybe it's a little bit fascinating to you, is this phrase was always used for the emperor and never Jesus. It was always about who was on the throne, who was the president, who was the leader, who was the military force. They had the marker in time, and when they would set out an edict or decree or command, they would mark it the beginning of Emperor Julius Caesar or whatever. They would go through that line of thought. And right here, right away, Mark is saying, hey, by the way, they're not actually the king. Jesus is the king. They're not actually the most important figure in history. Jesus now is. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. There's a marker in time. He wants to eliminate any confusion about who Jesus is right away. That's why he parks on the whole idea, the good news about Jesus and the next phrase is the Messiah, the Savior, the prophecy being fulfilled, the anointed one, the one who's come to rescue his people. He's not just that which he is, he's also divine. He's the son of God. His identity is stamped into eternity. He is God's created son. He is the one. He existed before time and he's still at work. He is God's son. And I think it's incredible as you journey through this, there's so many things we're gonna read that for us, we think that's totally normal. But if you're reading this phrase, just this first verse, this sentence, if you're reading this as a first century Jew, you would have stopped in your tracks. Like, hold, wait, what? You just said he's, that he's actually the king of the universe and that it's not Caesar it's not the Roman forces who have the most power. You're actually saying Jesus says, and he's also the rescuer, and he's also divine, but he's standing right in front of me, this 30-year-old guy. Like, what is happening? There would be some significant uh, questions, significant confusion, significance to what Mark is writing. And he starts the whole thing this way. And it'll set up the rest of what we're about to read, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And I think it's critical that we understand how significant these claims are before we even begin. Because you and I, if we grew up in church culture, we think that's like the most boring verse in all of Mark. <laughs> Can we move on to something more exciting? 
But that is it, that is the whole point. I love what H.G. Wells, he's a historian, incredible quote I stumbled across as we were journeying through this. Here's what H.G. Wells writes. I'm a historian, I'm not a believer. This guy's not a Christian. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. This is not an insignificant rabbi we're reading about from Nazareth. This is God. This is the center of all of history and all of humanity. And so let's keep reading. Skip down to verse four. Here's what Mark continues to write about this story. And so John the Baptist, the forerunner, this guy who had prophesied about Jesus coming, he appears in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, I don't know about you. When I go into church and have to hear a hard message, I don't feel comfortable anymore. <laughs> Baptism, repentance, forgiveness, those are not fun things to have to talk about. Because number one, repentance means you're living the wrong way. You're in error. And number two, forgiveness means you have something you need forgiveness for. And yet, John is preaching this message. And he's talking about baptism. If you're a first century Jew, you don't need to get baptized because you're good. You've been covered. If you're a nice law-abiding citizen, your kids behave, you go to synagogue often enough, you're okay. In West Michigan, we say, yeah, yeah, I grew up in that church. I'm good. I'm set. I don't need to keep doing things to earn God's love or his favor or his salvation. Uh, maybe your, your kids are nice enough and they behave well when they go to synagogue. They're not mean. They, I even give them like a dollar. Hey, put that in the offering so it looks like you're a generous kid. Like I do all the things that you need to do. I'm set. And yet look what happens in verse five. This offensive, repulsive thing of baptism that they don't need. Look what happens. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And look what they do confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Just to add weirdness to the story, Mark includes verse six, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And just crowd after crowd, group after group, family. Maybe they're in Jerusalem and it's like 4.30. They're like, let's get out of work early. I'm hearing that there's this guy, he's baptizing people. Uh, we don't even know the specific distance they'd have to travel. Some of them had to travel multiple hours on foot. There was no Uber. Like they were literally traveling as a family, packing up everybody. And they're going to this countryside and on the way there, they're confessing sin. Think about how weird this would be if you left work and on the way out, you're like, here's all the things I struggle with. Here's my sexual addiction. Here's my drinking problem. Here's how I, I mouth off to my, to my boss and my wife on the way. Like that would be really, really odd. <laughs> at least where I work and I work in a church. That would just be a weird thing, okay? Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but this is what's happening. They're going to the water to get baptized. They're repenting, they're confessing sin, they're expressing all the ways that they have sinned against God. And they're getting a picture on the way of the unfiltered Jesus, and he's not even there yet. They just hear what he's gonna be like. 
they just get a glimpse of, of some of those filters being removed, some of the, the, the barriers of religion and, and ritual getting tore away, and they're, they're having this moment where all they can do, the most pure response, is to repent and get baptized, something they would have never done without, a, un, without an unfiltered view of Jesus. Again, this will not surprise you. You've heard me say this before. I love to eat. It's true. Some of you are just like, what? Was that supposed to be profound? No, it's just true. It's, I love to eat. Some of you are in the room, and I think this is a little bit odd, but some of you in the room, you eat to live. Like, you just do it because you need sustenance. How many of you have said this? Oh, yeah, I forgot to eat today. Just real quick, throw it up. You are weird people, okay? I don't know how that happens because here's what's true. I, I love you, but you're a little bit weird. Uh, here's what's true for me. I live to eat. It's true, I do. I, I love food, I love the experience, I love going out. And one of my favorite foods that if you catch me on an off day and you don't have any questions about my diet and you just let me do what I wanna do, I'm getting pizza. I don't, again, I don't know what your life is like. I had like a 15 minute conversation at Domino's the other day with a guy just about pizza. Like I was just there, I was locked in. He tried to hire me at the end, I'm, I'm kidding you. He asked like, do you wanna be a delivery driver? It's like, I got a job, sorry. I thought about it though. But one of Lindsay's first jobs during college, and one she had for a long time, like even years before I ever met her, she worked at this local pizza place, this Italian restaurant in Flemington, New Jersey called Alfonso's 202. And it's like dead in the heart of New Jersey. And if you talk to anyone from New Jersey about pizza, everyone in New York is wrong about pizza. And if you're in New York and you're talking to them about pizza, everyone in New Jersey is wrong about the right pizza. But one of the first times I ever visited her hometown, I sat down at Alfonso's. And I was obviously there for her because she was really good looking and she was delivering pizza to me. Like, does it get better as a man? Like, that just, that's perfect. And so I'm sitting there and she brings this pizza out and my life was changed in a moment. No, well, she was beautiful and we eventually got married, but I'm talking about the pizza. Like I, I, I sat there and I inhaled this incredible buffalo chicken pizza. Like not, now I'm a purist. I'm not a ranch on buffalo chicken pizza. I'm just giving me the buffalo chicken and the cheese and the sauce. It's incredible. And I sat there, I devoured the pizza and it was incredible. It was a life-changing experience. Now there's a big difference between that experience and going to your local Little Caesars. No knock on Little Caesars, but they're not in that business. They are in the quick, hot, and ready business. They're like, how quick can I pump out some pizzas? It's a very different thing. But really, is there any big difference between cheese and sauce across state lines? Yes, there is, exactly. Some of you are like, I have to think about that. There's a massive difference between cheese and sauce across state lines. Friends, that's a little bit what I'm talking about when it comes to following Jesus unfiltered versus filtered. There's a massive difference. On paper, you may say, yeah, I follow Jesus. I know what he's like. But the more and more you get a glimpse of the real thing, apart from religion, apart from how you grew up, apart from maybe the, the distorted picture you, ha you have right now, when you see the unfiltered Jesus, you can't resist him. And you can't even resist the kind of life that he wants to beckon you to and invite you to. See, following a filtered Jesus, it actually erodes life. 
Because when we follow a filter, Jesus, we put our preferences, our systems, our voting habits, our, our spending habits on him. We reflect all those and say, that's what Jesus is like. It actually ends up becoming about us. We are using Jesus to accomplish our own ends. He's just a means, it's just a way I get there. But when you follow an unfiltered Jesus, he restores life. He brings you back to the whole reason you were created for worship, for meaning, for belonging. And it's not attached to what you produce. It's not attached to who you're married to or what your kids are like or how good they are at sports. It's, it's unattached from all of those things. It's simply attached to your identity in him and following an unfiltered Jesus, friends, it restores life breathes life back into what a relationship with God was always intended to be like. And I find such hope in the fact that in verse nine, Jesus steps on the scene. And he hasn't spoken up until this point. He's largely, especially in the gospel of Mark, been unknown. He's not mentioned until this verse actually showing up in history. Verse nine, this is what Mark writes. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You obviously acknowledge that Jesus hadn't done anything at that point. He was just God's son. He hadn't healed anybody, no miracles had taken place. He didn't even teach anything. He just was there and he responded to what God was doing by getting baptized. Why does Jesus need to get baptized, by the way? Can we just take that to the side? Why is that even significant? Because if you get baptized, that means you've been forgiven, you're repenting, you're turning, you're laying down your old life and taking on the new. What old life is Jesus even laying down? There's just no need. He just showed up, he's around 30 years old, hasn't done anything significant. Many scholars, and I would agree with this, believe that Jesus is simply responding the same way that these people respond. He's responding to God's new work. He's identifying with you and I, saying, I'm just as dependent on my Father as you are. I need God just as much as anybody else. If we really believe what the scriptures say, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that Jesus had a dependence on the Father that we should emulate. He had a, a, when John 15 later talks about this idea of abiding in Christ, living in communion and unity with him and dependence on him. The independent life erodes life. Following a filter, Jesus placing what we want on him, it actually tears away the life God intended. But when you follow an unfiltered Jesus, an unfiltered relationship with the Father who loves you, that restores life. It doesn't promise life will get easier. Because look what Jesus encounters in verse 12. The same spirit that opened up and descended on him sends him out into the wilderness. In verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. It makes me so sad when people say, I wish Jesus was here. I wish he knew what I was going through because he does. He does. The pain you're experiencing, he knows. The confusion maybe you experience in his humanity, Jesus knows. The temptations you face, the addictions you're trying to, to throw off, the sin that so easily entangles our lives, 
Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. In fact, he sat there and was tempted by Satan himself for 40 days. Jesus knows. He doesn't just identify with us in baptism. He identifies with us even in suffering, even in moments of weakness. I love what we sang just a few minutes ago. In my weakness, Lord, your glory appears. And an unfiltered Jesus knows what it's like to suffer with you. He, know, he is not exempt from pain. He doesn't run from your most difficult circumstances. When your kids are literally projectile vomiting on you in the bathroom and you're like, I wish I could get some peace. I wish my life could be a little bit more normal. Jesus knows what it's like. Maybe not to have your kid vomit on him, but he knows what it's like to, to desire Peace, and he's came to bring us that, but you will never experience that apart from meeting, encountering, following an unfiltered Jesus. And what happens in this story is that all these people, as they have this revelation and they respond to the revelation, they, they encounter the unfiltered Jesus, the true and better King, the real Messiah, they respond with some defining next steps, like baptism. And maybe for you, as you're on this journey and you're, you're learning more and more what it means to be a Christ follower, maybe that's your defining next step. Maybe baptism is something that you've yet to do and that's what you need to do to, to draw a line in the sand and say, God, I surrender to you. You can have my life, I'm gonna follow you. Maybe for some of us, it's as simple as serving. Because here's what's true, and I'm just straight up, it is so easy in West Michigan, Byron Center, where you and I live, to watch church happen, to sit on a sideline, to spectate, to be a consumer of what, what church can bring. And I'm not saying that that's kind of all of us, but there's some of us who just need to jump in, who need to start serving. And you're like, yeah, I haven't figured out my spiritual gifts yet. You will figure them out as you serve. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I don't, I don't know if I can commit to the time. You will make time for what's important to you. I don't know if, my kids might hate me if I gotta get up early and get to church. I got no else why. They will be better for it, I promise. There are moments along the way where sometimes rather than sit and watch, it, God is asking us to, to jump in. And when we have an unfiltered view of that, he restores life. He brings us back and even in serving for some of you, it's just maybe accepting Christ. It's surrendering your life to him. Maybe you've never done that. And this is a decision that you've been pondering and thinking about and praying about. And, and there's no better day than today. As I sat uh, at the end of Christmas Eve, our first service, I was sitting there and I was tired and I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna make my flight. We did a stupid flight thing, we made it, but I didn't know if we were gonna make it. Like all these crazy thoughts were going through my head in between services and Anya, our administrative assistant, actually comes up right after the end of first service and taps me on the shoulder. I'm like, oh no, what's wrong? Like I, sometimes there's just stuff that happens or, or things are breaking or whatever. And I'm like, oh no, what, what's gonna happen? I, I assume the worst. And she said, hey, I've got someone who wants to accept Christ. Do you think we could do that right now? And I was like, uh, yes, yeah, we can do that right now. And she was a woman that sat back. She was invited by someone that some of us in our group invited from Chick-fil-A. And she came and she stepped through that door with her child in her hands. And she said, I wanna surrender my life to Jesus. I wanna follow him. How do, how do I do that? And I was like, oh my goodness, this is what you live for, right? As a disciple of Jesus, you live to make other disciples. That's what you live for. But for Myra, it was a defining next step. She had to walk through the door. 
She couldn't just sit there in the back corner and let life happen. She took a defining next step. And when she got a picture of the unfiltered Jesus, it changed everything for her. It's incredible. That's why we do. And here's what's alarming about 2020. First Sunday of 2020, full disclosure. 2020, if we choose to follow a filtered Jesus, will be exactly the same spiritually as 2019. Exactly the same. We will grow in our own pride and our own selfishness. We'll keep trying to use Jesus to get to our ends. We'll be frustrated in relationships. Our hope will run out as our circumstances get harder. But that doesn't have to be our reality, friends. We actually can have a significantly different year, spiritually, in 2020, if we choose to pursue and to meet and to follow the unfiltered Jesus. He's done that for me. I believe he can do that for you. I believe it. It's why we exist as a church. And so I actually wanna take the next few moments and just in the quietness of our time together, I wanna pray that over us as a church. I wanna pray that through this journey, even despite our needs as a church, even despite our needs personally, and I wanna pray that God would mark us and allow us to truly encounter the unfiltered Jesus. Because friends, when you do, Everything changes, everything. And I wanna pray that over you. Would you join me as we pray together? Father, I'm just asking today that for every single person in this room, that even now, as much as we may think we know you, as much as we think we're growing in faith, and so many of us are, there's so much more you wanna show us. There's so much more of the kingdom of God you wanna to reveal to us. There's so much more forgiveness and hope. There's a better marriage. There's a more generous life. There's a God who doesn't sit there with hands out asking and demanding us to produce for him as if we could somehow add value to you. There's a God who with open arms saying, just come to me. Experience what it's like to meet and, and to follow the unfiltered Jesus, the true and better Jesus. The one who wants to restore life to us. And so God, we just open ourselves to that today, asking that you'd help us to encounter you in the scriptures, in the gospels, to not just read them, but to live them. <laughs> to not just read and continue on in our independent way, rushing from practice to practice, paying bill to the next bill. Because when Monday hits, God, we desperately need you. So we're crying out, God, help us to meet you. Help us to encounter you this year like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.